Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being. Today we'll be talking about how you can write your own well-being prescription. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality improvement and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is obviously a really, really important issue at the moment. Today we're going to be talking to a consultant obstetric anaesthetist who also happens to be an expert on performance stress management and human factors about how understanding the things that impair our performance can really help us to maximise our well-being. So Kat, I kicked off there um, by talking about a well-being prescription but it might be worth kind of talking about what we mean about that and my understanding is that we're going to talk to Mark about kind of tools and ways that you can help yourself to improve your own well-being be that during your working day or outside of work. Yeah absolutely and so one of the reasons that that we invited Mark to join us on the podcast is that he along with some colleagues um, have authored something called the Baker's Dozen which is as the name suggests 13 tips and strategies to help clinicians um Uh, sort of reduce stress, improve their resilience, which I know is a bit of a dirty word, um, and just generally kind of maximise their well-being at work, Uh, not just in the times of COVID, but generally recognising the fact that people work in a high-stress environment um, and that we might need to to address that and recognise that. Great. It sounds really interesting and I'm really pleased to welcome Mark onto the podcast. My name is Mark Stacey. I'm a consultant uh, obstetric anaesthetist. I work in Cardiff. I'm also one of the Welsh Associate Deans who looks primarily at sort of improving strategies for medical education, but have got been heavily involved in the last certainly 10 or 15 years in terms of developing well-being material for all health staff. So my clinical job is, is quite stressful, can be very stressful, and a lot of the techniques and skills I've learnt from that job, I've tried to help others learn so that they can use them in their daily lives. So Mark, we kicked off our introduction um, talking about human factors and what they are, and I don't think we came to a completely clear definition, so I was wondering if we could maybe start with you telling us what human factors are. Well, I, 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 human factors traditionally came from the um, the sort of airline industry and the aerospace industry because what they discovered as machines got more complex as people started crashing planes, not because they couldn't fly, but because the, the interaction between the human-machine interface was too complex. And what they discovered was that in order to cope with that complexity, there were skills that humans can learn to improve and enhance their performance in high-stress environments um, I've got a slightly different take on it. To I, I do a lot of human factor training with a colleague of mine, but uh, part of for me the output really is is, is optimizing performance, particularly performance under pressure. And in order for us to do that, there are a whole variety of things that we need to do well, including looking after ourselves, hence the interest in well-being, but understanding our own psychology, particularly under understanding our psychology when we are stressed, and the fact that. Uh, it's our emotional response to stress that can cause the problem rather than the stress per se. Um, in addition, things like understanding what we call cognitive bandwidth, which means that uh, 
as human beings, we have a limited uh, working memory, which again decreases if you get stressed. And in order for us to perform as well as we like to perform, or as well as we think we like to perform, you have to manage that process. What that means is not only do you have to learn to manage it on an individual level by looking after your physical and cognitive health, but also you need to learn to manage in teams because if you get if you optimize the performance of your team, you can increase the sort of communal bandwidth. The problem with that, of course, is that human beings communicate differently, shall we say. And uh, what you then have to learn is strategies of communication that optimize that uh, interaction between the members of the team and understanding that the members of the team are also affected by their own personal, perhaps health and psychological issues. That's probably quite different to what you get from an aerospace engineer, but that's certainly the way I've been running it for the last 10 years. <laughs> My particular clinical interest is managing difficult airways and obstetric anesthesia. So I work in an environment where you've got to get things right in a sort of one-minute window. Otherwise, bad things happen. And I, I sort of thrived on that. And I kind of, up until 2010, I'd been a consultant then for about 15 years. I, pr- I pretty much thought I was bulletproof. And then a series of things happened in, in very short a short space of time. Uh, I was unfortunately, uh, my mother wasn't very well. And at the same time, I looked after a child in Africa who then subsequently died. And I came back to the UK. And my first three weeks back in the UK, I had three obstetric deaths under my care. And it's it's very interesting. You think you're good at something until you're not. And I suddenly discovered that I really didn't want to go back to work in, in, uh, because I felt every time I went back to work, something bad happened to, to, to one of my patients. The good bit about the story is what I discovered about me was in the previous, I don't know, 25 years as a medic, I'd learned actually quite a lot of skills. And, and you know, most people who work in the NHS are incredibly resilient. That's what they don't realise. So first of all, I had a lot of skills, but also there were other skills that I could learn. I started reading a lot of uh, a lot of a lot more stuff about stress management. I had been teaching stress management before that. I was fortunate enough to meet the colleague I've been working with for the last ten years. He is he's quite an extraordinary performance expert, um, and I thought, do you know what? We can all learn these skills. And again, it, what I found pretty much consistently in people I've supported on a one-to-one basis over the last certainly over the last ten years since I've been running the the, the course that I run, is that um, every single time those individuals will have had skills that they could use to to improve and manage the the environment they work in, but they've stopped doing those skills. So they stop sleeping, they stop exercising, they stop meditating, they stop looking after their physical health. And I'm going, well, it's not surprising you're not coping. You know, it's, it's, it's how you manage yourself and how you maximise yourself, I suppose. And actually, I also found it really interesting, as you can probably tell from, from the enthusiasm in my voice. And what I will tell you, and I say this to everybody, is I thought I was a pretty good doctor before 2010, but I'm actually a much better doctor since. But more importantly, than that, I, I'm a much, I think I'm a better person. I like myself more. I'm not sure I like myself a whole lot up until about... Uh, I wouldn't say you should have a bad event for this to happen, though. I don't, not, I'm not recommending that, OK? Um, but, you know, it is amazing. And what I've found with individuals who have developed strategies to come back from serious incidents like that, they are almost always are, 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 are better individuals. I think it's also helpful for, you know, I think it's also helpful for my colleagues and that, you know, I am quite an old, quite an experienced consultant. I'm... I am quite confident in my abilities, but when they see that even somebody with my skill set 
can come a cropper. It just shows them that we are all we're all vulnerable to that. Um, you can you can you can push anybody to failure. Absolutely, yeah. We, no one is no one is infallible. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so you sort of see um, looking after your well being as being a, a sort of facet of enabling you to perform. What do you think is going on at the moment in with COVID nineteen in terms of how that's affecting the sort of interaction between clinicians and their workplace? What are the things that are increasing the stress um, and potentially reducing the performance? There's some very real problems. I think the the health issues around um, COVID nineteen are undoubtedly present. What concerns me, I think, almost more than that, though, is is the what we're beginning to call fear of COVID. You know, the brain can't tell the difference between a um, perceived threat and a real threat. And for many, and I mean, I've, I don't know about you, but I have read an absolute sort of ton of stuff around COVID and I'm probably as confused as anybody. But the reality of that is that people are being frightened about things that they have no control over. And unfortunately, by being frightened about that, they generate an inappropriate stress response. It's it's a bit like imagining that there is a saber-toothed tiger outside your door every time you go out. Um, so the issues around things like PPE, which have been in the press everywhere, uh, the fact that people are frightened of getting the disease, um, and that dramatically and negatively affects their performance which means that if you are performing in a in a high stress environment doing something that actually often we're very good at it impairs your performance and it makes your performance worse which again the knock-on effect of that is that can it can uh, it can negatively affect the, the patient it certainly affects our staff if if the leadership are stressed then the staff are stressed i mean i i make a point of on a daily basis of smiling as much as i can trying to ensure that i I've got enough sort of spare capacity to look after the individuals who are not coping well. And people aren't coping well. They're, you know, health professionals, I work on labour ward. Any of our patients could have COVID-19. It's not, it's not an elective process. All of our patients are effectively uh, either urgent or emergency. Um, we can't close it. So a lot of the strategies that we've used in other environments, we can't do. And it's supposed to be a fantastic experience for those people. Seeing somebody, I don't know how many people you've seen dressed in PPE, and it's one of the challenges. I set one of my airplane colleagues, I said, have you ever tried to fly a plane in PPE? But it's, 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 it's actually terrifying our patients. I've seen more panic attacks in the last two months than I... I mean, I've been an obstetric anaesthetist for, for nearly 30 years. I've seen more panic attacks in the last uh, two months than I have in my, my career. The ladies are absolutely terrified, and you can understand why. Um, you know, we look terrifying. We they can't really understand us because we've got these masks on. Uh, it makes the job really, really difficult. Even that, you know, the, the, the very easy stuff that we're supposed to be good at, simple things like putting a cannula in become challenging. Managing an airway, doing an epidural, things that we do regularly and are pretty slick at, we're not so slick at anymore. Um, so presumably that takes up a lot more of your cognitive bandwidth then as well if you know things that are normally routine uh suddenly become higher complexity uh, and higher stress yeah absolutely and i think one of the things one of the things i've said right from the outset because we've been seeing this coming and certainly in the anesthetic community our, our colleagues in italy were warning us about this two or three weeks before we actually did anything uh in in the uk so we knew it was going to happen and we knew that we were going to be the people who were probably potentially most uh, affected by it. But um, 
what I've been saying right from the outset to my colleagues and and sometimes, if possible, to my patients if they'll listen, is that you've just got to do what you do normally and do it well. Because the knock-on effect of a poorly performed, for example, intubation could be far, far worse than than, than the, the fear of COVID or, or actually even getting a COVID infection. If we take a, a simple, let's say a simple airway case, okay, my job <laughs> theoretically is very simple. All I've got to do is get oxygen from outside to inside the patient's lungs. But sometimes it isn't that easy and PPE makes it probably 10 to 100 times more difficult. And if you add fear on top of that, people will not perform as well as they can do. And the consequences for that patient and there's there's a recognized effect now in, in the medical profession called the second victim effect, which is where the individual who is, shall we say, traumatized by that, that outcome never goes back to work. I've certainly seen it in my career. Um, and that's more difficult. So things that we're, as I, said, as I said earlier, things that we were really good at, and we are really good at, if you're not careful, if you don't manage the way that you deal with stress, then the likely performance is going to be compromised. Um, and we, you know, human beings have this deluded idea that uh, we perform, you know, in a, in a stressful environment, we're going to perform really well. It's not true. You know, the best we're ever going to perform is the best we've practiced to. And if you haven't practiced with that degree of stress, with that kit on, even on a mannequin, there's no transference. Mark, one of the things that's come up as Kat and I have been doing this work around doctors' well-being is kind of a pushback against any kind of idea that this should be the individual's responsibility when actually the failing might be with the system. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on that in terms of the work that you do. Absolutely. And I mean, we've had issues with the system, again, since long before COVID came across. You know, the, the evidence from the surveys looking at doctors' well-being is very concerning. And I've seen this practically in my environment. The pushback I often get when I'm running sessions is that people will say, well, it it's not necessarily my fault. I'm going, yeah, but that that may be true. But the only way that you're going to ever deal with that situation is by optimising yourself in such a way that you can start to say, for example, I mean, one of the questions I often get asked about is rotors. And I'm going, well, the only person who control that is you. I can't control it for you. But what, what individuals, I think, often underestimate, and I, I've been in a situation myself, and I know lots of other people who have, is that when you are very stressed and you're suffering from an an inappropriate stress response to that stress you lose your way and unless somebody else is around there to help you out or dig you out of it it's actually very difficult to see solutions to problems that you may see if you look at the um, baker's dozen thing the first uh, the first of the baker's dozen is uh, if you look at um, the challenges that we face as a threat you will treat it as a threat which means that you will generate an inappropriate stress response if you look at that challenge as a challenge you know Health professionals are very, very good at solving problems. But that's a mindset thing. It's something I think you'll find that people who are very good at coping with extreme pressure do, and they do it automatically. Obviously, in the long term, you can push people over their performance curve. And I've, again, I've seen more failure at both ends of the age groups, more and more in the younger doctors, and even some of the sort of doctors my age who've just had enough because of the relentless pressure of the system. But I do believe that if, if we are s- sort of using and maximising our, our, if you like, our stress management techniques, it does give us an opportunity to start to, to deal with that. Um, but I think what you alluded to there is that 
you know, we can cope because we put in place this structure of strategies and relationships that enable us to cope. You know, we can't just cope in the abstract. And I think, you know, obviously the Baker's Dozen, which you refer to, which is a, a publication that you and some colleagues have, have produced, which gives lots of these tips for kind of that coping structure, does that. And you have 13 tips in there. But, you know, if you had to pick your sort of top three that people should be focusing on right now, what, what would they be? Uh, do you know, I've been asked that question quite a few times, you can imagine, over the last few months. And, and my top three is probably going to change. So somebody will say to me, well, you didn't say that in the last time you asked me. OK, but that's because I think they're, they're all very important. I'm going to pick the top three at the moment, which uh, because you've pressed me into it. The first one, I think, is sleep. I think there is absolutely no doubt in the work we've done. I, I, I'm lucky enough to work with a, some of the elite sport and sort of elite mi- military individuals who, again, have a different different set of stressors to us but they have to deal with it in the same way that that we do but sleep is the most important performance enhancing agent we've been able to find and if you can optimize your sleep you can optimize your performance i mean you know what it's like you if you wake up in the morning and you've had a good night's sleep you can take on the world if you wake up in the morning and you've been tossing and turning and not worrying about something well it's challenging it's challenging to get through the day so one of one of my rules is is ban the phones from the bedroom. I think ban your electronic stuff from the bedroom. Uh, have a set sort of wake up routine and look at strategies. We've just we've just bought a new mattress, which has definitely helped our sleep. But uh, you know there are lots of things that you can do. Michael Farquhar, who's a, a sleep expert, I don't know if you've interviewed him before, but he's he's very good. But he's got some fantastic resources on sleep, which I recommend people look at. There, there's some great stuff on, on shift work. You know, I, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm of a seniority and age where I haven't had to do shift work for a bit. But for my trainees and, and, and for, for the staff I work with, there are some very practical strategies that you can address to optimize your sleep. So, so sleep would be the first one. Second one at the moment, I think, is undoubtedly physical exercise. Um, physical exercise has a range of benefits, both physical and cognitive. And to be honest, we've been very lucky. The weather's been great the last... I don't know what it's been like where you are, but we've been very lucky in Cardiff. The weather's been great the last few weeks. So get out and do some physical exercise. Do something you enjoy because it will give you that uh, endorphin surge, but also physically it'll be good for you. And then it gets to number three. I I would say if you don't already have some kind of mindfulness or meditation technique, then learn, learn one because it will help you both in the short term severely acute response to stress so again in the the situations where where you start to panic so for example as i talked to you earlier about my patients having panic attacks i teach them to breathe which is effectively just a very short meditation technique the reason it works in such a short term is because it changes your physiology which changes your psychology which changes your performance and i mean there is a lot of <laughs> again a lot of pushback sometimes around meditation just think of it as a skill. Think of it as a cognitive skill. One of the things that we've noticed uh, in the teaching we've been doing in the last 10 years is if you're not doing a meditation or mindfulness technique every day, you're spending less time on your mental health than you are cleaning your teeth. And I think that sort of reframes it for some people. They go, oh, yeah, maybe it sounds, you know. And there's some great stuff out There's some great resources out there on, on, on mindfulness and meditation. So that's but I could give I could pick any if you ask me another day I'd give you a different set of answers. Sleep would probably be still be at the top. One of the things I try and do with the teaching sessions, which people can do with the Baker's dozen if they want to, is to use it as as a strategy for writing your own well being prescription, in the same way that you'd write a you know an asthma prescription. I mean that's how I designed it initially, and it, it seems to work. So you you pick and choose which of the ones you want to you want to do. 
but you write it for yourself and you commit because you've written and you've signed it at the bottom and you put a date on it, you actually commit to it. It's quite interesting, the psychology of that and the fact that, I, I mean, I, I, I update mine every six months. Uh, certainly at the moment, I'm updating it pretty much every week because <laughs> things, things are developing as they do. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. Yeah, definitely. Write your own well-being prescription. Yeah. And the other thing I always, you know, encourage people is if if you've got clever things that you use, like the gratitude diary, uh, there are lots of them. I mean, one of the rules that I wanted to implement before COVID came along in my hospital was what they call the 10-5 rule. I don't know if you've come across that. But the 10-5 rule is that when you come within 10 feet of somebody, you smile at them. And then if you come within five feet, you acknowledge them. So it just improves civility. Uh, obviously, with COVID, it might have to be a 2010 rule or something. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think the principle is the same. Absolutely. And maybe even more important with social distancing. Yes, that, exactly. That we're still exactly. maintaining that interaction, even at, even at a physical distance. Exactly. You might have to wave through your PPE, though. Yeah, well, exactly. And as far as I'm aware, smiling doesn't transmit COVID. No. <laughs> <laughs> Those are really nice examples of the things... I think people could do outside of work as well as inside of work. I wonder if there are any kind of specific practical tips you might have for people kind of during their working day. One of the nice things for us is that we go to work, which means we meet other people. And, you know, that social contact is is, is a massive boost. So we get in fairly early. We, we do a ward run fairly early so we know what's going on. We have everybody is encouraged to take a break. Uh, and again, when you're taking a break, phones are banned again. Uh, talk to somebody. Talk to one of your colleagues. Talk to somebody you don't know. That human contact shows that you care and it just shows that you um, are trying to sort of make things a little bit more normal. We smile a lot. Uh, often, uh, often you've got PP on, you can't see it. But one of the things I will say to my patients sometimes is I, I can, with the PP on, I say, can you tell if I'm smiling or not? And they usually can. So I said, that's the face you're looking for. When I stop doing that face, start panicking. Now, that was a joke. Uh, but, <laughs> so, so one of the acronyms that is bandied about a lot in human factors is what they call the HALT acronym, the hungry, angry, late, tired. And actually, the recommendation is to, to avoid those rather than encourage them. So we do that. At the end of the day, one of the things that I, I like to do, which is, again, sort of starting to engender a culture on the ward is just thank everybody for, for for doing such a fantastic job during the day because we do i think health workers do an amazing job and certainly the ward i work on i'm very privileged to work with some some fantastic colleagues and then the other thing that i do at the end of the day uh, and i do this every day i started doing it in about 2010 when i had a run of uh, very unpleasant clinical incidents under my care so the first thing is something called the gratitude diary, which is where I, I, I try and think of things I'm really proud of or grateful for over the last 24 hours. Now, if I've had a particularly challenging day, I, it's a real struggle sometimes. But the fact that I've been doing it for so long means that on the, on, I'm, I'm quite fortunate I can cycle to work. So I cycle home and I've reframed my sort of mindset by the time I get home. So that the first thing, I, first discussion I start with my wife is is a positive discussion, not necessarily all the... I don't try and whinge as soon as I cross the portal. And the other thing that I, I teach, and I, I teach this a lot, is something called the stress bucket. Um, again, it's a very useful cognitive tool. And what you do with the bucket is you fill it up with your stress during the course of the day at work. And at the end of the day, empty the bucket so that when you get home, you've got a nice empty bucket, which you then fill up with your stress from home and you reverse <laughs> the process when you come to work. But the fact I'm guessing this is a hypothetical bucket. 
Well, I can yes, it's 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 a, it's a, it's a, yes, a theoretical bucket. Although I have had people looking, going, "Where's the bucket?" I'm going, "God, you guys have got no imagination." <laughs> but the fantastic thing about this technique for me, it was taught to me by the guy, the, the chap I mentioned before, who I do human factors training with, is that it really, really works. You know, and you need you need the bucket, which I've just donated to you free of charge, uh, and you need you need a trigger, okay? And the trigger, it doesn't matter what your trigger is. My trigger is locking and unlocking my bike outside the hospital, and his trigger is straightening his tie in front of the mirror when he leaves the house. When he gets home, he dramatically removes the tie and throws it onto the banister. Doesn't matter what your trigger is, but you do it either side of the day. I've got, you know, one of the things that I've tried to encourage the staff to do is when you change out of your work clothes, you empty your bucket. Uh, interestingly on Labour Ward because I've taught so many of my colleagues this that if they're having a bad day they'll often say to me my bucket's a bit full today so back off (laughs) Well I thought that was a really interesting chat that we had with Mark I think he had some really great tips sort of practical things that people can do not just doctors actually I think everyone you know I think I might be taking some lessons from him and thinking about the gratitude journal. And so I liked, although I'm not going in and out to go to work, those kind of markers in your day that signify the beginning and the end of work, I think those could be really helpful. Absolutely. And we've talked about that in other podcasts, haven't we? So Caroline Walker talked about um, having that ritual to end your day and just kind of mark transitioning from one part of your life to another. And so it's interesting to hear some of these themes coming out that people Mm. um, are sort of repeating that clearly are really important. I think for me, and I know that I keep sort of relating everything to parenting, which must be a bit annoying, um, but I really see with my kids, um, it's so obvious when they're hungry or when they're tired because they can't cope with anything. They start falling over, literally falling over, bashing into things, just anything kind of makes them lose their temper. They cry at the drop of a hat. And I think the truth is, that's just what humans are like. And we kind of accept it in small children. And it's your job as a parent to keep them fed and keep them, try and make sure they get good sleep. But then when we're grown up, we just kind of fail to acknowledge that truth about ourselves. And we fail to acknowledge the fact that I am also a hangry person. And I also, if I step too late binging Netflix, then I'm useless the next day. Uh, So I think it's really just embracing the fact that we are very physical beings um, and that we have to pay attention to that because it it does really, really impact on our ability to cope, not just with high stress and COVID, but just life in general. Absolutely. I think the lesson kind of is we're all human. Yeah. And um, it's nice to hear that you're a hangry person, Kat, because I am a horrible hangry person. I think we all are. Maybe the hangry should unite. I think some of us just hide it better than others, (laughs) to be honest. On that note, I think we should wrap this up. Um, Thank you so much to Mark Stacey for joining us today. You can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. Please let us know if there are any issues that you'd like us to cover in future. Until next time, that's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.